So uh, we're in a series, obviously, called Off the Fence. I need to do something that, well, I got to talk about our, our East location in front of their faces. If you don't know this, uh, we're live in multiple locations. And so I need to talk about East, but I got to talk to West about East. So just listen. Uh, everyone at West who's with me right now, if you'll just look around, just, just kind of move, move your heads, look around. Be like, wow. Some of you love this. You, you like sitting shoulder to shoulder next to complete strangers or people here. You, know, you love that. You love that. It's great. Others of you, this is the worst thing that could have possibly happened to you going to church. Like this is like, this was your nightmare, was that you were, you were going to have to sit next to someone you don't know, and, and, you're like, and you're like, oh no, and some people probably are having to stand in the lobby and stuff like that. So here, everyone at West, we have another location with seats. East is full of nice people, like really nice people, and uh and it's incredible, so just if you didn't know, at the same time, 9 and 11 at East, they've got services going on at the same time, it's all live, hi everybody, and, and, and also, there's a Sunday at 4, there's just lots of options if you're like, this is the worst, do we just go right now, what, what are people going to say, okay, just, everyone understand, good family conversation, okay, so now that we know that lots of us are tuning in from all over, uh, we have been in a series, this is the end of it. If uh, you've been out of it, don't worry. I'm gonna, my goal is to catch you up a little bit. I'm going to start off with a guy named Lawrence Lemieux. Uh, I think I'm saying that correctly. He's Canadian. That's how you say Canadian last names, I think. Uh, let me tell you about this guy. This is in 1988. Uh, he's obviously on a sailboat. Uh, waves pretty big, 15 to 25 feet. Uh, storm has brewed and is cooking and ready. And... Uh, He's, as he's sailing, of course, paying attention to his sailboat. This is a true story, by the way. He notices there's another boat, um, basically like his, that has turned over. It, it's, uh, for those of us who don't sail, I say it wrecked. Uh, but it's, it's turned over. The problem is, is the storm has brewed so bad, and there's a current now that's so dangerous that he notices one of the people from the sailboat is now being pulled away from the boat, and cannot get to the boat and, and, and can't even swim to it. The current's too strong. Uh, the other sailor there on that boat yeah, is waving his hands, trying to get someone's attention. And, and Lawrence notices that there's blood like just pouring down his hands. So he's obviously been majorly injured. Now, most of you are like, so this is a story of Lawrence Lemieux going to save these guys. And, you're, and, and it's true. That's what he does. That's there, spoiler, I just told you what happened. <laughs> Lawrence steers his sailboat over, knowing that no one is going to get to these guys in time, right? He's the only option. You can think, well, what about that? What about, no, 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 no one else is going to see and get to them fast enough. He is their sole option for survival. So he does. Sails right over and is able to actually save their lives. The reason the story it should be meaningful to you is that this is in 1988 during the Olympics. It was an Olympic race. Lawrence Lemieux was in second place at the time that he saw this accident. And in fact, most historians, those who know Olympics, would have said that he was going to be actually the gold medal winner for that race. He was set to win it. He was already in second place, always looking well until he sees what he saw. He saves their lives, ends up getting 22nd 
in the Olympic race. I don't know if you know much about the Olympics, but I'm going to tell you, when you lose your race, the best option you have is that maybe you might be able to try it again in four more years. It's, it's uh, almost absurd for an Olympian to consider like as though it's locked in and promised that they'll be able to do it again. So I hope you see like the quandary he had. You and I were like, well, he's saving a life. I get it. But when you have spent years upon years upon years investing, you've got people, coaches, money, all of this pooled into this so that this guy could win this race. He's going to win the race. And then all of a sudden, like, how'd the race go? Well, I got 22nd. The people who sacrifice on his behalf, right? All of the other stuff, right? Going on. Not everyone, I think, is happy. Now, we might go, well, he did a good thing, but can we admit that not everyone involved in that story would have been like, yay, right? So I think that helps us. I want that story sitting in your brain because we have been in a story that Jesus told that so far is epically awesome. (laughs) Jesus tells a story about a son who basically trashes his whole family and God, sins against God and his family, goes off and and blows his inheritance and does horrible things and finds himself so destitute and starving that he's like, I got no other options other than to go back home. And so that's what he does. He goes back home, but he can't go back home, home. He can't be home. He can't be mom and dad kind of stuff. He's going to go back and it's going to be his workplace. He's going to be servant, no longer son, servant to his dad. And the way Jesus tells the story is before he can like really just throw himself on the ground, the father runs to him, hugs him, embraces him, kisses him, and then follows up this declaration of love with an act of generosity going, son, you know, here's my robe, here's the family ring, some sandals, and we're going to have the most epic time together. We're so glad you're home. It's an awesome story. But there's a quandary that then Jesus puts at the tail end of the story that if you don't get it, you're going to miss the whole story. Uh, So if you've been missing this, here's where we landed. Everything I just told you happened. And then verse 24, so the party began. That the lost son is back. And the party is going to be epic. We've already described If you like beef and barbecue, who cares who's at the party? This is just going to be good. But everyone wasn't happy about this. And there's a lesson in this. Let me me walk you into the final part of the story. The older brother, it's always the older brother. No, just kidding. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. He wouldn't go into the party. If you don't know cultural uh, history, especially with the Jewish tradition, uh, if you had a meal with someone that you were at odds with, that was a way to restore the relationship. If you attended a wedding, you're affirming everything about the wedding, right? That's, that's how this, this whole thing worked. So, so he's saying, I'm not going in there because, well, his father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, notice he doesn't say my brother, Yet when this son of yours comes back after swandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. This is how life works, okay? Not trying to be a downer. 
You can make all the right decisions. You can follow Jesus Christ as your personal savior. There, there are people getting baptized. Come on. Like you can do that and be like, we all should be happy about that. Everything should be good. Yay. But can we admit that it doesn't always land like we want it to land in the lives of the people around us? Which becomes a challenge. It becomes something in your life that you got to deal with because so far in this series, we've talked about loving people. Yay! Talked about giving, and people are like, kind of yay, I don't know. Right? But, but necessary. Well, now we got to go after what does a life look like committed to loving God and loving others the way Jesus said to do it? How do we do that? I want to teach you how because it's in the Bible. It's not just best of luck, be optimistic, unfriend your, your haters. It's, watch what dad says. We had to celebrate. I really don't have to say a whole lot more because he's already he's repeating that the, the son has returned. He was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. I want you to see this first part. We, ha we had to. We had to. When was the last time you said you had to? Sometimes it's like, well, I didn't technically have to, but... Like, I have to eat those cookies? No, you don't. You really, you don't. <laughs> but is that not the language that you and I both use when we walk into something saying, this is a big deal, and so we leverage the big deal. We talk about the big deal by saying, I have to, we have to. This is that important. Should grip you a little bit that the dad begins to explain himself the love and the generosity, right? Because remember, Jesus is telling the story. This is a parable. Jesus is saying this is how you and I are supposed to live with unconditional love, irrational generosity. Why? Because we have to. Every one of us, all of us, have stories of churches who decided to not love unconditionally. All of us have stories of churches and Christians who decided to not be irrationally generous. And why does that stop? Why do you guys, and why do, we, why, do we find, why do we find ourselves going, I don't like what's going on in the world. How do we bridge the gap between, I don't like it. It's not right. It's not good. How do we fix it? Jesus just gave us the clue. The father never surrendered his responsibility of being a dad. It's that simple. In this story, Jesus isn't just telling a story time at the library. <laughs> He's saying, this is how you live your life. If you're here just because someone's getting baptized and you're like, well, I, I got invited and there's a, a promised meal afterwards or something and, and you're like, well, okay. I'm a <laughs> Wherever you are with Jesus, I want you to hear something. If you think churches are full of hypocrites, you're absolutely correct. If you think the world is full of hypocrites, you're absolutely correct. So rather than harp on what seems to be evident in the world, what if you and I said, but what, what do we do about that? How do we make sure that you and I aren't hypocrites saying that we should love people and be generous? How, how do we do that? So we as a church have decided that we're going to treat Luke 15 as a mission. Years ago, I uh, asked God, hey, would you give us a Bible story 
us as, when I say Fountain Springs Church, would you help us as a church help uh, new believers, unbelievers, uh, Christians, non-Christians, whatever terms you want to use, would you help us be a group of people locked onto what you want us to be locked onto and we need a Bible story? And so God, literally in my prayer times, like the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15, and like a good pastor, I was like, I don't like that one. Choose again, God. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't know what, what he was saying, so I, I kind of played this delay game with God. I don't know if you resonate with this at all, but I began to say, God, um, that's, yeah, no, that's not us. And he's like, I'd like you to read it. I'm like, I've read it before. I'd like you to read it again. Fine. That's our close relationship. Just want you to know me and God. <laughs> when I began to study it, and even we as a church began to study it, we began to see like, whoa. Luke 15 is a mission for life. If you've ever wanted to love people well, if you've ever wanted to follow Jesus Christ well, if you've ever wanted to have God in your life as you're supposed to, not religiously, but with relationship, and you're like, how do I do this? What kind of life do I, and we begin to say, well, go here and be this and stand up and sit down and kneel, and we begin to get into the methods of it, and we skip the values. And inside of this story, this mission, there's a set of values that we've been talking about. And just in case you've been a part of this series and you've missed it, here we go. Here's the values in this story. Unconditional love. I've said that multiple times now. Irrational generosity. That's one of the values to live life by. But there's this last one. Unwavering mission. How does a person not just say this is what's right in life and, or not just have this uh, one-hit wonder kind of a, where like, I remember when I was this one time generous to this person or I loved well this one time. How do you and I walk into work, school, ooh, our marriages, our parenting? How do we lead our businesses? How do we lead others? How do we be the church in the community, the region, the state, the nation, and the world that we're supposed to? There's a mission at hand. And guess what the great temptation of life is? To be on mission sometimes. All of us have done it. To be on mission when it's convenient. When everyone around us agrees to it. But we don't live in that kind of world. So how do we live this way? Good question. It's that we had two statements. It's conviction versus preference. Let's talk about preference, because frankly, uh, I have lots of them. Um, I prefer, I, don't, I prefer not, not the cake donut, all of the other donuts. <laughs> Some of you, you like cake donuts, that's fine. I'm not, you have the right to like that. We, you've already heard a little bit about cats and dogs and how there seems to be a quandary. Easy question, dogs, it's always dogs. Dogs are great, cats are evil, settle. <laughs> You have preferences, I do too. You have preferences for music. We don't need to go into that because we will create an all-out brawl in this church. <laughs> you have preferences. Preferences are not like this evil thing in our life. And, but the problem is, and, and this is where we get it, is we, preferences are fine and, until, until preferences get more weight, more authority than convictions. Every one of us faces this tension of, I have these convictions, but then a preference walks by, and a preference is tasty and smells good, or gives us a feeling that we might be in the mood for. It's what temptation, it's why temptation is so good. 
It goes after your preferences. And the father in this story brings up, we had to. That's a, that's a convictional approach to life. Notice he doesn't tell the older brother. So I want to hear your whole story. Tell me why. You might have a good point here. Notice he doesn't tell his son, I've got to endorse everything you're telling me in order for me to love you. You notice his response is, we have to do this. We have to. I wonder if the father had in his head going, and I don't want to. I know sometimes, oh, David doesn't say that in the Bible. I agree. I just know when someone's hurt me, I don't typically think about giving them the best steaks from the freezer. (laughs) I don't typically think about how do I reward this person But do you know you can make decisions that go against your preferences because of a conviction you have? Let me give you a story. Father Maximilian, uh, if you go all the way back to the Holocaust at Auschwitz, uh, there was one particular day, this is documented in our history books, uh, there's one particular day that um, everyone is woken up and the prisoners are all brought out into the open Uh, The guards say, hey, uh, someone escaped last night. And and the way this worked was is they felt like they had to obviously drive with fear, operate with fear, like use fear. So they told everyone, because someone escaped, 10 of you were going to starve to death in front of everybody. They created, in essence, a pen for these human beings. And they gathered up 10 prisoners and we're gonna put them into this cage and everyone would have to just walk by these people starving to death as punishment, saying, don't you ever try to escape. Um, the 10 were lined up, and this is where Father Maximilian, who was a prisoner, no joke, he raises his hand. He's not one of the 10. He says, hey, can I... Can I take the place of one of them? Um, For some reason, they let him do that. They randomly took one of the 10 out, threw Father Maximilian in. And if you want a good end to this story, there's not one. They were gathered up, given no food, no water, and the rest of the prison camp had to day after day watch them starve to death. The reason I'm able to tell you this story is survivors wrote about it. And here's what they write. It's worth just telling you. Uh, It was an enormous shock to the whole camp. We became aware that someone among us in the spiritual dark night of the soul was raising the standard of love on high. Someone unknown, like everyone else, tortured and bereft of name and social standing, went to a horrible death for the sake of someone not even related to him. To say that Father Colby Maximilian died for us or for that person's family is too great of a simplification. His death was the salvation of thousands We were stunned by his act, which became for us a mighty explosion of light in a dark camp. 
I don't know if anyone has ever told you this, but if you're a Christian, you're called to that kind of life. If you're a part of a church, the church is called to this. So let me say something that you already know, but in relation to our series, getting off the fence requires courage. And I would tell you, why aren't all churches healthy? Why aren't all Christians actually people who, who do what they say they believe? Right? Why? Is it because they want to be a hypocrite or they're not in the mood to do it? I think it's courage related. I think since we were little kids, all of us have constantly been battling how to be courageous enough to do what should be done. Uh, I've been a leader long enough now, when I say leader, like children in the home. Uh, I've been married long enough. I've been a pastor long enough to tell you the greatest deficit I believe in Christians these days is courage. If you don't know something about this church, I'll tell you. Um, the history I'm told is this church in 1999 was supposed to close. Like forever end, be done. We never hear of it again. And a courageous group of people have been willing to let Jesus be the guide rather than religion or preference. Jesus gave us this model, uh, Luke 19, 10, one of my favorite verses. For the Son of Man, who is Jesus, the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Yay, right? If you, you don't, grace, mercy, yay? Eh, eh, come on. When there's baptisms, I hope we're better than this. For the Son of Man, for Jesus Christ, his mission, right? Why does he invade the earth, come in, in physical form? Why does God show up like he does? To seek and save those who are lost. But if you study the life of Jesus, do you know that on multiple occasions, we have in the Bible, the Holy Bible, moments where Jesus is like, I don't feel like doing this right now. One moment, Jesus is in the garden, nearing his impending brutal beating and, and death and all of that. And we have on record this prayer going, Father, like, if there's another way, if there's another option, uh, let's do that. And you have to wonder, was, was courage in, in low supply at that moment? But then he says something very convictionally, but, but I'll do what you want, Father. Like, let's do the will of the Father. And you see courage in Jesus. Sometimes we treat Jesus like he was 0% human. Even though the Bible says that he faced what you and I face. I'm telling you. I'm telling you with, with all conviction that he had conviction and needed courage. And you do too. Every day. And let's keep teaching the healthiest courage. Comes from the right convictions. Sometimes uh, I'll do this with my kids. Hey, you know, you don't need to be afraid. Just, you know, be brave. Never works, ever. I, you know, they still have, I, I, yeah. Have you ever wondered how to have the courage that other people seem to have? I have. Like you watch people go through stuff and you're like, well, you must not have been afraid. And they would say, oh, let me tell you. 
most people that I know that they put themselves in dangerous situations. It's not that they're in their situations going, I wasn't scared at all. It was totally just, I mean, no big deal. Most of us are like, whoa, it was intimidating. It was scary. It was dangerous. In a conversation when you have to confront someone going, I didn't want to do that. Most normal, healthy human beings do not love confronting another person. But some do and some don't. Where's this come from? And I would say healthy convictions. What tips someone over from going, this is the right thing to do. I need to do that. That's how I need to live my life. That's the, that's the mission I need to be on. How do I, but I, I'm afraid. I don't, I, it might mean I have to make some tough decisions. How do, I, how do I get there? I would tell you it's not the lack of fear. It's the presence of convictions. If you want to live the rest of your life as Jesus intended you, you got to have the right convictions. And so I wondered, writing this sermon, going, uh, does our church know the convictions that our church is led by? And the answer that God gave me was no. I think he's wrong, but I'm still going to do it anyways. I'm just kidding. He's totally right. <laughs> but if you don't know what convictions to lead your life with, if no one's ever taught you, like, what should I, like, fuel my family with? How do we make decisions about what we do and what we don't do? How, how do I lead whatever you're leading? How do, how do I respond to hurt and pain? How, like, what kind of convictions need to walk with me into all of the rest of life? Well, I think what the church has as convictions can be transposed onto your life no matter what season of life you find yourself in. So we're just going to go through this. This is going to be fun, I think. The church must never forget it's the church. Kind of goes back to the beginning with the father. The father, he didn't forget he was dad. That's why he tells the older son, hey, buddy, love you, uh, but we have to do this. Why? Because I'm dad. Why? Because no one else is going to. It's my role as dad to fight for this family, right? Jesus never forgot that he is the answer that we needed the salvation that we crave. And even in the midst of perhaps fear and intimidation being brutally beaten and all the atrocities that went on with Jesus, he never forgets that he is of all the names he has, one of them being he's the savior. He's the guy he didn't forget. And the church must never forget that we're the church. If you want to know why there's so much tension in politics, let me tell you, <laughs> uh, it's because so many of us are demanding and wanting of the government what the church should actually be doing. But over history, the church stopped realizing it was the church and designed by God himself to take care of people's needs, and we let the government take care of stuff. A group of people who can't do it well, won't do it well. It's never going to happen well because we're supposed to. There is your political science lesson for the day. <laughs> Before you clap, let's listen to the whole sermon. <laughs> Here's another conviction. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Let me state this clearly. No political party is. Listen, listen. Your boyfriend is not the hope of your world. Neither is your girlfriend. Let me walk this further. Your husband and your wife your children. The hope for this world is Jesus. 
And I think, I think we've not necessarily mentally forgotten that. We just have paused that. That's true, David. That's right. Are you letting that conviction drive your decision-making? Because when next fear that you face, if you bring this with you, that fear has less of a chance. Jesus' plan for uh, spreading that hope is the church. Uh, let me give you some examples. Uh, when Jesus said he was going to build his, he didn't say, my hospital, which we need hospitals. I'm happy a hospital is available. He didn't say, we're going to build uh, a nonprofit organization. He didn't. What Jesus said, I'm going to build the church. And why was he going to build the church? The church was intended to then disseminate this hope according to Jesus' commission everywhere. Jesus' plan. If you hate the church, that's fine. Totally fine. It's still Jesus' plan. Be careful trashing another person's bride. Be very careful. You do that with me. I probably lose my job. <laughs> you cannot like the church. That's no excuse to pull away from the church. Because it's the delivery vehicle that Jesus intended. So either we don't like it and we fix it, or we just sit on the fence. Another conviction the power of God's presence is essential. You're like, but isn't God everywhere? Yes. Matthew 18, 20. Let me show this to you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Interesting that Jesus says this because what I'll tell you is, and we learned a little bit of this in the midst of COVID and not gathering in person, but I'm going to tell you there's something significant and, and supernatural when we gather. So you need to know that as a church, we have a conviction that no matter what the weather is like, and no amens there. Come on. I mean, like, when they close I-90 down, which that's their choice, it's fine. But when, when we can't meet in person, we figure out a way to get together in our living rooms and wherever you watch it digitally, hello online, right? Like, we figure it out because assembling together, gathering together to experience the presence of God is essential. And if you want to know why some people don't have courage to follow God, because they don't spend time with God, with anyone else. It's the classic social media post of someone being out hiking by themselves going, this is my church. And I would say, that's good for one hike. What about when you need someone though? So we'll tell you over and over that it is a passion of ours to experience the presence of God together and alone, but there's something about together that we hold as a conviction. Uh, here, let's do more. The best tooling and teaching comes from the inner, or uh, from the Bible. Just trying to help. <laughs> if you want to know where we get our sermons from, uh, the Bible. The Bible we treat as authoritative as the inspired Word of God. Um, I don't. We don't just pick verses and try to figure out how to make them work for ourselves. Uh, a lot of times. Uh, sermons are frustrating because of the truth that it does reveal because we, we preach from what's called the whole of Scripture from beginning to end. I mean, you've got you to know what it's all saying to understand certain parts of it because it was written in a different language, different culture, different time, and it's sometimes just difficult to get our minds around. So the best tooling, the best shaping and teaching as a church we hold convictionally comes from the Bible. We're like, what about the Holy Spirit? We 
Yes. But the Bible was delivered via the Holy Spirit. Let's get into super, super, super practical. The church should become as you are, which means you can technically wear whatever you'd like. And that's fine. Let's go a little deeper than that. We believe you should not have to fix yourself up emotionally, spiritually, in order to be a part of our church. Nor should that be anywhere else. You should be able to come as you are, not get fixed up, changed up, right with blah, 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 blah. No, you, you just come. If, if you're experiencing trauma in your life, if you're experiencing breakup and betrayal, if you are in, living in shame right now just for what played out yesterday or last week, do you need to fix that before you can be with us? No, the church should be as come as you are. And that will frustrate some of you. Would you like to know why? Because you might have to worship in the same room as your ex. Or the person that you don't like from school. Or someone that makes it on the front page of a paper or a news article and going, oh my. What you should say, I'm so glad you're here. You see where courage is necessary. Let's keep going. You should know and be known. Meaning you should know people and be known by people. That's a conviction. That's why you're going to hear us say over it. We're better together. You're like, stop saying that. No, we're not. You should know and be known. Look around. Everyone, wherever location you are right now, if you're online by yourself, this will be weird. But uh, look around. <laughs> Just look around. You should know some people and be known by people. You need people. Stop in your mind going, well, not me, I mean, David, you knew, I mean, I'm a high achiever. Okay, you need extra people. <laughs> it's a conviction of ours that you need to be with people, around people, known by people, not just like names, but, but where they can challenge you and you can challenge them. I'll show you another one. Meeting needs is the best way to prove it. I shared, if you need to know, I'm going to share it again. Uh, our weakest part of our church right now is this. We have a lot of stuff that we think is right, but we're not proving it well. We're not serving well. We have so many deficits, it's crazy. Most of our staff spends uh, for Saturdays and Sunday mornings trying to fill all the gaps, and we're calling like brothers and uncles and and making sure that everything gets like where everyone can actually be cared for and, and welcomed and greeted and kids can be taught as they should. But you need to know this is our weakest part. Meeting needs is the best way to prove it. Helping a kid know who Jesus is, getting a bag and filling it up with coats. There's tons and tons of opportunities, but as a conviction, we're gonna push and push and push and push for you and I both to be serving. Serve with your family, serve with your roommates, serve by yourself. If you're single, come on, start serving. It'll help. <laughs> Every stage of life matters. The healthiest churches, I'll tell you, are multi-generational. Meaning you shouldn't look around and say, like, everyone is exactly looking exactly the same. A healthy church has children, teenagers, young adults, and then adults. And we as a church believe wholeheartedly it's a conviction that every stage of life matters. And so we will offer very specific age-related opportunities to learn about Jesus. 
because every stage of life matters. We don't just have babysitting and once they get to be like, well, they, when they can serve and give, <laughs> then we'll take it. No, no. Every stage of life matters. That's just some of the convictions that you are welcome to steal and live out. All helping us do this, our unwavering mission to show people who Jesus is. I hope you want to do this. Here pretty soon, we're going to baptize people. And if you've ever needed a physical display of what it's like to show someone who Jesus is, when you watch people being baptized, not because they are perfect, but because they know who Jesus is and want to declare that, come on. I love that we as a church, like a lot during the year, have baptisms. So what's a picture of all this? You may not, we'll see where this goes. Let me show you what being a Christian is. That is, uh, from what I, the best research I can do, that is a coffin. You're welcome. <laughs> but supposedly, supposedly, that looks like a one-way missionary's coffin. If you've never been taught about one-way missionaries, I've said it many times, it's a missionary who decided that they heard from God and they were going to go to a group of people and they were, going to, they were going to tell that group of people who Jesus is. But the commitment was this. They would take all their belongings, they would build or buy a coffin, put all their belongings in the coffin, and the coffin would be their suitcase because they did not need any other suitcase, meaning where they were going is where they were going to die. What would happen if a church approached life this way? Where we were all in, unwavering, all about this. So if you want to know what is the mental picture of a healthy church in your pastor's brain, that. A group of Christians who say, I'm all in. There is nothing more important than showing people who Jesus is. In fact, let me prove it this way. Some of you are supposed to get baptized and you didn't come plan for this. But because we as a church believe it's our mission and we hold this conviction, we're going we're gonna to interrupt the regularly scheduled sermon ending kind of thing, and we're going to do this. If you're supposed to get baptized today, we are ready for you already. We have shorts and t-shirts for you to change into, a towel even, come on. We're ready to pray with you, answer questions you might have where you didn't have to go to a class or even come prepared we're just ready for you because that's the kind of group of people we want to be. That if you've decided to follow Jesus, yet you've never been baptized on your own, it wasn't your decision, and you're like, I feel like the Holy Spirit's talking to me. We're ready for you. That's who we need to be. Ready for anyone and everyone so they would know who Jesus is. That's the kind of church we're going to be. That's the kind of church we always will be. I hope you'll be a part of it. You are cordially invited. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ that you would um, convict every one of our hearts, especially mine. God, would you convict my heart that every single day is full of people who you love. I will cross paths. We will cross paths with people that you have you have sacrificed for, that you have intervened for, and that you are chasing after, and that you want to have a relationship with. God, would you convict my heart and all of our hearts that we would see that and feel that each and every day. 
And Lord, for those even today that, that, that know that you have spoken to them and, and today is their day to get baptized, would you give them the courage to do that today? And for everyone else, Lord, would you help us have the courage to be the kind of church, the kind of Christian, the kind of person that lives with a mission, that our decisions each day, God, would you, would you help us to know how to live that out, how to, how to make those choices that honor you the most? But God, we praise you for what's about to play out. You change people's lives. You save people. You intervene. It's all you. So we just want to witness what you have done for your glory. And we honor you, God. You are the source of hope and peace and joy. You are our our everything. Help us be the church that you always knew we could be. We love you, God. And we praise you for all you've done. Amen.